This is hell. With our most sincere apologies, we don't have any of the answers you might be seeking, but we got plenty of questions. This is hell. Questions like, what the hell is happening in Haiti? The president who was elected through what Haitian activists like today's guest calls an electoral coup d'etat, he's assassinated only days after he names a new prime minister. This is only a month after he has a falling out with Haiti's wealthiest person. But instead of the hand-picked prime minister following the line of succession becoming the new president, the acting prime minister declares he is now president. However, he soon abdicates, stepping aside for the person who the assassinated president had selected as the new prime minister. If that's not complicated enough for you, the national police, according to a recent Harvard study, are in cahoots with gangs and paramilitaries who have murdered hundreds of innocent Haitians and raped dozens more. That police force is now is how the ruling party keeps down any opposition. But that's not the only way they stay in power. They also retain that control because they are supported not only by the United States, no matter which party controls the House, Senate, or even the presidency here in the States, but also by the United Nations, which occupies Haiti at the behest of Canada and France. Why do Canada and France insist the UN have a military occupation of Haiti? Again, who the hell knows? The narrative we hear here in the United States is the problem with Haiti is widespread corruption. Not mentioned in that narrative is who is corrupting Haiti? Back a little over 100 years ago, President Woodrow Wilson, a white supremacist, sent in the U.S. military to intervene in what Wilson saw as chaos following the assassination of another president, Cincinnatus LeConte. Could the U.S. be on the verge of another military intervention today? Or what if the U.S. called for new elections that would be free and fair? Is that possible, considering the government that is in power, according to the U.S. House Committee on Foreign Affairs, believes any vote taken under the current ruling party would likely be riddled with irregularities, keeping them in power? We'll try to figure out what's happening in Haiti in a few. When we speak with Seth Donnelly, who posted the Black Agenda Report article, The Assassination of Jovenel Moise, What Next for Haiti? Seth is a member of the Haiti Action Committee, which you can find out more about at HaitiSolidarity.net. And you can follow them on Twitter at Haiti Action One. Seth is also the author of The Lie of Global Prosperity, How Neoliberals Distort Data to Mask Poverty and Exploitation, which was published in 2019. He's been an activist with the Puerto Rican independence and black liberation movements, particularly who's, uh, those led by prisoners. Seth, Seth also co-authored Human Rights Reports, censoring the United States and Brazilian governments for their role in the killings of Haitian civilians following the 2004 coup. Also on today's show, we'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll share with you what's happening on our Patreon podcast tomorrow, Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll tell you what's happening on This Is Hell next week. And of course, we will have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin during this week's moment. Jeff gives an avowed centrist a lesson in radical socialist leisureism or leisureism, or as Richard said yesterday, leisureism. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, how has your week gone so far? I'm flooded with black raspberries. You ever had a black raspberry? Yes. They're terrible. Oh, oh, really? I guess we've come to an impasse here. Or wait a second. It's possible I'm colorblind. <laughs> yeah, maybe those are just regular raspberries, because the ones I'm eating taste like mud. We signed up for a CSA, and I think it's just a front for whoever's trying to push a truckload of black raspberries. I, their real name is Thimbleberries, too. I think the word raspberry is doing a lot of work in there. Not happy about this damn black raspberry situation. I've been trying to say raspberry to annoy my girlfriend, just like I try to say Wednesday in February. <laughs> 
Uh, we got an email from Chris yesterday, and he writes, Hey, Chuck, uh, our office hours back on at Carrie's. What days and times? So I replied telling Chris that office hours, our weekly meet and greet with listeners, which is more like a drink and think, has yet to return. But I told Chris he could join us, or should join us, this Saturday, July 24th at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood at 2 p.m., shortly after the world broadcast premiere of This Is Hell on WNUR 89.3 FM, Chicago Sound Experiment. He should be joining us, as all of you should be, because Jeff Dorchin will be reading his favorite moments of truth with live musical accompaniment, maybe. I don't know, possibly. This event will likely last less than an hour, so get over, up, or down to Carrie's early so you do not miss a moment. I'll be there. Our correspondent from Sao Paulo, Brian Muir, will also be there, so please join us and a lot, lots of listeners of the show. So I told Chris, no office hours yet. Then last night I came over here to feed the feralish bar cat Mel and print out my interview notes, and as I do every night, and lo and behold... It sure as hell looked like office hours, because plenty of listeners of This Is Hell were downstairs, including Max, who was in town for a wedding and made a point of coming to Carrie's, thinking office hours were still being held every Wednesday night. I mention Max because I just love the people who drop by office hours and the randomness of it. He was in town from Loudoun County, Virginia the home of the current critical race theory non-controversy that's becoming a, that's become a controversy because it's completely misunderstood and misrepresented in right-wing circles. And his take on what's happening in his home county of Loudoun County, Virginia, was enlightening. So, to clarify, our weekly meet and, <laughs> meet and greet, the drink and think that is, this is how office hours are not back at Carrie's Lounge yet, but unofficially, it sure looks like office hours are back every Wednesday. More important than any of that, Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, where did it all go wrong? Where did it all go wrong? I really like that question from hell. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can email it to us. You can tweet it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our interview with Seth Donnelly. Again, this week's question from hell is where did it all go wrong? As this week marks our 25th year of airing on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR, we asked listeners to tell us how they originally discovered This Is Hell, and we have a couple more responses we want to share. Derek writes, I only started listening in April of 2021, this year, when you had on Vincent Bevins, who authored one of the best books I read this year, or last year, he says, because it came out in hardback last year, and we had Vincent on after the paperback came out this this year, and that's the book, The Jakarta Method. I've been a regular listener since. See you Saturday at Dorchin's reading of Moments of Truth. I'm looking forward to meeting you, Derek, by the way. <clears throat> Derek, unless you want to hear an angry Brian Muir, do not mention how much you like Vincent's book. I thought it was great, but his writing on Brazil, it, it's not quite right. And it drives Brian crazy. Greg says of finding This Is Hell for the first time, I was also wondering this. I can't remember. I suspect it was either recommended to me by someone I trust or I was searching for a person you interv... Wait. No. That's right and wrong. 
I believe as I think back about it that the late, great Bruce Dixon of Black Agenda Report told me he was going to be on the show. In fact, Black Agenda Report, I got to say, has been the biggest supporter of This Is Hell. Almost from our very beginning, Glenn Ford and Bruce and more recently Danny Haifung, Margaret Kimberly have been incredibly supportive and done a fantastic job getting the word out about This Is Hell. And we cannot be appreciative enough for everything they have done for us. So thank you, Black Agenda Report. We'll share more of your stories about how you found This Is Hell in the upcoming days, weeks, and months as we approach the date of our 25th anniversary listener appreciation party and art show. This is art, which appears to be happening on Saturday, September 18th. If you would like to suggest a musician or musicians to perform or artists whose work you would like shown at the party or would like to donate something as a prize for our raffle, simply email us at chuck at thisishell.com. Coming up, what the hell is happening in Haiti? We'll also tell you what's happening on Patreon during our Friday Patreon podcast this week, and we will have Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, where did it all go wrong? Where did it all go wrong? The person with our favorite answer gets whatever they want when it comes to This Is Hell merchandise. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail on our Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us, but we gotta get your answer. You gotta get your answer in right away. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. The United States and the United Nations support a government in Haiti that systematically abuses human rights, that engages in paramilitary violence, including murder and rape. The country is in miserable poverty despite the U.S. pumping tons of money into the country, which is weird, because when the U.S. was boycotting Haiti back in the early 2000s, Haiti was able to, as our guest will explain, build more schools than in the previous 150 years of Haitian history, expand health care, construct affordable housing, form cooperatives, disband the human rights abusing army, expand women's rights, here to give us a better understanding of what is happening in Haiti. Seth Donnelly posted the Black Agenda Report article, The Assassination of Jovenel Moise. What next for Haiti? Welcome to This Is Hell, Seth. Thank you. Thank you, Chuck. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah. Seth, Seth is a yeah. member of the, Haitian, of the Haiti Action Committee, which you can find out more about at HaitiSolidarity.net. And he's also the author of the 2019 book, The Lie of Global Prosperity, How Neoliberals Distort Data, Damask Poverty, and Exploitation. And I have no idea how we missed that book, because that sounds like a great title, and we would have loved to have you on the show about it. So you write that today, the people of Haiti are facing down the U.S.-backed dictatorship of the ruling Haitian Tet Cal Party, or we'll be calling it the PHTK throughout this interview. They came to power through the fraudulent election of Michel Martelli back in 2010 and maintained its grip on power through the fraudulent election of Jovenel Moise in 2016, what Haitian activists refer to as an electoral coup d'etat. What is the evidence that there was fraud when it comes to the election of the recently assassinated Jovenel Moise? Well, the, the, you know, it's 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 interesting because, of course, with hearing so much about fraud from Trump, it it, it uh, it's meant a lot of people forget that there's very real fraud. Um, and in in the 2016 elections, it was they were based on mass voter suppression. So we there was a delegation of of the Haiti Action Committee and others that was on the ground in Haiti at the time. And they observed uh, that there was uh, just uh, people who had tried to vote and their voting stations had mysteriously changed. Uh, they would show up and they wouldn't be on a list. Um, 
So, and then we saw in the dense popular neighborhoods, like say Cite Soleil in Port-au-Prince, it's a very impoverished neighborhood of about 300,000 people. It's a stronghold of the Lava Lost People's Movement. That in neighborhoods like that, um, the irregularities were profound. And normally Lava Lost would sweep that neighborhood and, and, and you know, mysteriously, uh, the PHTK came out on top. Um, there, uh, there's actually a very good in-depth study on both the 2016 election and the 2010 election that put Martelly in power. 2016 put Jovenel Moise to power. Uh, but the Center for Economic, CEPR, I'm forgetting the actual acronym right now, it's the Center for Economic and Political Research, I believe. Mark Weisbrot with uh, the CEPR has done some good studies on both elections and can go into detail for your listeners about all the machinations. Um, but the essence of it for both was voter suppression. So why, you know, you point out that both elections were held under UN occupation and appointed or sponsored by the U.S. government as Secretary of State Hillary Clinton detoured from her trip to the Middle East at the height of the Arab Spring uprising right. in Egypt. She personally intervened to put Martelli into power. So why was it so important for Clinton and the Obama administration to have Martelli and his PHTK in power? Well, I think the way to understand the the, um, the PHTK regime, right, is that it's the institutionalization of the 2004 coup against President Aristide and against the uh, Lavalos government. Um, there was a very brief period in Haitian history where the masses of people were able to, to in the 20th century, Haiti was firmly under the, the boot of, of U.S. Uh, imperialism. You know, the, it, as you mentioned in the, in the intro, um, next Wednesday, July 28th, is the anniversary of the U.S. Marine invasion of, of Haiti uh, in 1915 under President Wilson. And the Marines stayed for 18 years, um, forced the Haitians to rewrite the Constitution to open up Haiti to foreign ownership. Um, installed forced labor uh, for the peasants and Jim Crow laws. Uh, the NAACP, James Weldon with the NAACP produced a very powerful report about the human rights abuses under this occupation that at the time was published in the NAACP's magazine, The Crisis. Um, I linked to that, that report in, in my article. But following the removal of U.S. Marines in 1933, the U.S. then had... Uh, built and, and financed and trained the dreaded Haitian army, which became the backbone for the Duvalier dictatorship in the uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s under both Papa Doc and Baby Doc. And under that dictatorship, Haiti was open for plunder, you know, the, uh, for American corporations, other, other uh, corporations. And, um, and, but a mass movement developed of, of the poor, of, of, of market women, of students, of workers, of farmers. And that movement became known as Lava Loss. In Creole, Lava Loss means each person is a drop of water and uh, it's a flood. That's what it means. And so this was a huge mass movement that toppled Baby Doc. He fled in 1986, resulted in the drafting of the Haitian Constitution in 87. And finally, in 1990, the, the first truly fair and free election in Haitian history of President Jean-Bertrand Aristide, who was a priest of the poor in Cité Soleil. And um, 
the Aristide period was was short lived. In within eight months, the CIA and the U.S. government backed a violent coup against him by the military, which is still in place. And then we had a, a brutal military dictatorship for about three or four years, um, with a, a killing squad called the FRAP F F A R P H that was being paid and um, backed by the CIA. That's declassified documentation. It's clear that the FRAP was. People, FRAP leaders like Emmanuel Toto Constant were on the payroll of the CIA at the time that they were, the FRAP was killing thousands of, of Haitians. Under international pressure, Aristide was able to return. Um, solidarity work actually paid off. And he was, uh, there was a, a brief period from around 1995 where um, Lavalas under Rene Proval, uh, at the time a Lavalas uh, leader was able to be elected and then Aristide was reelected in 2000. You can't run two consecutive terms in Haiti, so he waited till 2000. And that's when you had this incredible period of school construction, healthcare expansion that you mentioned a few minutes ago. That again came to a halt in 2004 under a second U.S. coup. And ever since then, Haiti has been under U.S. and U.N. occupation, military occupation, um, and. The Haitians have been struggling courageously, uh, again, um, exemplified by the Lavalas movement and the political party Famille Lavalas, struggling for the restoration of real democracy. So when we look at the, the, uh, the PHTK regime that um, came in in 2010, its purpose, to, to answer your question, but I want to give a little context for your listeners, its purpose, its function has been to institutionalized the plunder of Haiti. Um, folks like Marta Lee, like Moise, they have been um, carrying, the, and their regimes have been carrying out massive land grabs, displacing peasants, um, further opening up Haiti's vast natural resources for foreign plunder um, by, by uh, foreign companies, including Canadian. I mean, Haiti is mineral rich. I mean, it's one of the it's got massive petroleum, bauxite, gold. So people often say, why Haiti? Well, Haiti is resource rich, and that's one of the functions of what the PHDK regime has been doing. On top of further waging war on the, on the popular movement, which never was defeated by the, two, the, the 2004 coup, despite thousands of people being murdered, Lavalas and the people of Haiti have never backed down. So. With these regimes, we're seeing an escalation of terror financed by the United States, by both the Trump and the Biden administrations um, against the people. How consistent is U.S. policy toward Haiti, no matter what party has the majority in the House or Senate or in the White House? To what extent is U.S. policy in Haiti bipartisan? It's remarkably consistent which should probably come as no surprise to your listeners listening you know as i was learning more about your i wish i could come to your 25th anniversary since i'm certainly going to check out your program more on my own but um you know the the democrats and the republicans have maintained um first let's go even further back opposition to the haitian revolution right haiti became the first country in the world to overthrow slavery in 1804 and at the time, that was extremely um, inspiring, of course, to people um, in slavery anywhere in the world. The Haitian government offered free asylum to people that could get out of slavery in the United States. They offered free asylum to indigenous peoples in the Americas that could get to Haiti and escape persecution. 
Haiti supported Simon Bolivar's expedition to, to liberate Venezuela on the condition that he abolished slavery. Um, but on the flip side of the coin, the U.S. Uh, leaders, starting with Thomas Jefferson, were terrified. And um, these, were, of course, were folks whose political and economic careers were based on slavery and the expansion of slavery. So right away, the U.S. sided with the French to punish Haiti and force Haiti to pay. The French government demanded reparations for the money they lost by no longer having the Haitian people in slavery. So with the U.S. strong arming that demand, um, Haiti was paying um, this debt all the way to the 1940s, which amounted to today about $22 billion. Um, one um, commentator called it the greatest heist in human history. Um, if you go to Haiti, you'll see large parts of the country that have been deforested, and that was to pay out, to, to cut the, the, the trees and sell the timber to pay off the debt. When the U.S. invaded in 1915, it took over debt collection directly, and um, um, you know the U.S. actually became directly involved. So that was under the Democrat Woodrow Wilson, as you noted, was a white supremacist. Throughout the whole 20th century, Democrats and Republicans have supported um, these, uh, the, the in essence, the, the Duvalier dictatorship. They supported the. They've been supporting the war on lava loss and the people's movement ever since. So it was actually under President Obama that uh, Marta Lee, the predecessor of Jovenel Moise, was installed um, in in a in a clear uh, electoral coup d'état in which Lavalas was banned from even participating. Right. So, um, and Hillary Clinton, who is Obama's Secretary of State, as you mentioned, she rerouted her trip. She was on route in 2010 to Egypt during the Arab Spring, and she came back to Haiti to maneuver Marta Lee, who's a far right-wing uh, celebrity uh, personality in Haiti, uh, to maneuver him into power. So it, the PHDK regime is as much a product of the Democrats as it is the Republicans. Of course, Trump comes in and hosts Jovenel Moise in the, White, you know, in the White House and pumps even more money into the security forces in Haiti. But since Trump, Biden has continued the, the same. They, they recognize that Moise should be able to stay illegally, unconstitutionally in power an extra year in opposition to what every sector of Haitian civil society was saying. Uh, Moise was termed out uh, as of this last February, um, but the Biden administration uh, supported Moise's illegitimate claim that he could stay in power another year and organize elections. Um, the Biden administration has supported the notion that fair and free elections are even possible under this regime, which clearly they're not. And the Biden administration has recently, in this fiscal year, called for $21 million to the Haitian police that are demonstrably linked to massacre upon massacre and gross uh, human rights violations. So the consistency is, 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 is very, very clear. Um, there is a pushback by some of the more progressive-leaning Democrats in Congress against this policy. In April, about 68 Democrats in the House signed a letter to Biden Secretary of State Anthony Blinken saying, you need to stop supporting this dictatorship. You need to stop supporting Moise's plan to have a constitutional referendum that would even further augment his power. And so that pressure seems to be generating some results. Um, since following that letter this last April, Blinken backed off supporting the referendum. But to date, Biden and Blinken have not stopped supporting the PHTK regime, funding it, 
and supporting the idea that it can actually organize elections. Your article was uh, posted a week ago today uh, on Thursday the 15th. But as the Washington uh, Post reported a few days later on Monday the 19th, Claude Joseph, who was who has nominally led Haiti as acting prime minister since the assassination of President Jovenel Moise, has agreed to step down and hand over power to challenger Ariel Henry, who has been backed by the international community. Ariel Henry was selected as prime minister two days prior to Moise's assassination. What role do you think that selection of Henry as prime minister played in the assassination of Jovenel Moise? I don't think it, 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 it um, I mean, at this point, clearly uh, it's speculation as to exactly who was involved. It's clear that Moise's assassination was an elite job. So, but exactly, he had, he had made many uh, enemies um, within the elite. So, um, but it's speculation. I, I would speculate that it didn't have any influence. Um, you know, there, the previous prime minister he'd picked, Claude Joseph, um, was, uh, you know, there was opposition to him um, from, the, from all sectors in society. Um, the OAS had been in Haiti in mid-June. Uh, a small OAS delegation that where the U.S. was uh, playing a key role, and that delegation issued a, a completely problematic report when it got back, basically recognizing Moise's pow- uh, right to stay in power, but they said he should pick a new prime minister and pick a new electoral council. Um, and so, following that, he picked this, you know, Ariel um, uh, as as his new prime minister, but. I don't think that was, you know, the factor that led to his downfall. Um, you know, he had, he he was moving in like a like the Duvalier days. Um, he was moving and muscling some of his own people into um, other uh, parts of the territory held by um, other members of the elite. Um, you know, for example, one of the most famous oligarchs in Haiti is Reginald Boulos, um, and Boulos had had left Haiti uh, because he was experiencing problems with Moise and Moise had him under investigation. I'm not saying that Bulos ordered the hit, but I am saying that there were contradictions that had emerged within the ruling circles, you know, with Bulos and other, other, other members of the small Haitian upper class. Clearly whoever did it had money, serious money. And it was, it was a uh, professional hit involving as the media has reported these, uh, these Colombian mercenaries. On uh, Reginald Boulos, there's a front page article in today's New York Times with the headline. Oh, my God. This headline is just unbelievable. U.S. lobbyists find a bonanza in Haitians jockeying for power. It's more like it's not a bonanza. It's like vultures circling the dead, you know. So uh, there are rumors that Reginald Boulos may be the mastermind of Moise's assassination and also may be considering his own run for president of Haiti. The New York Times reported three days after Moise's assassination, Reginald Boulos, a prominent businessman, is one of Haiti's richest men and a former ally of Mr. Moise, has hired two U.S. lobbying firms to represent him. This month, according to a federal filing, Mr. Boulos retained another firm run by Arthur Estopanen, who is a lobbyist who served as the chief of staff for U.S. Representative Ileana Ross-Lettinen. In an interview, Mr. Estopanen said he has, was helping Mr. Boulos, quote, get his message out in Washington. How predictable do you think Moise's yeah. assassination was once the rift between him and Boulos happened? 
Well, you know, Bulos is a traditional, you know, when you look at U.S. foreign policy towards Haiti and they're both Democrats or Republicans, they're, the, the Haitians that count to the U.S. power establishment are members of a small upper class, you know, who might have, you know, go back and forth between Miami and have, you know, their kids might be in U.S. colleges, uh, you know, elite colleges. And, you know, another person like Bulos is Andy Aped, a sweatshop owner. And Bulos, Aped, and others were all involved in uh, supporting the 2004 coup against President Aristide. Um, so these are uh, not only very powerful people in Haiti, but they're, but they're go-to people for the U.S. Um, political establishment. Uh, again, it's all speculation. Um, you know, uh, I'm finding out in real time as they, as they do, as, you know, and it's hard to know who's, you know, what kind of investigation is reliable or not in terms of be, who is behind, exactly behind Moise's assassination. But certainly it, it makes one think about what happened to Diem in South Vietnam, you know, another U.S. puppet that was assassinated with the U.S. giving the green light. Moise had proven incapable of carrying out his functions as a puppet. Like he had not, despite the terror, um, you know, the, the regime had been working with these paramilitaries. We call them paramilitaries, not gangs, because the U.S. corporate media refers to them as gangs. And that is problematic in a lot of ways because it makes it seem like they're autonomous from the state. It also plays up all the, the racist stereotypes about black people and gangs. So what these are objectively are these highly weaponized paramilitaries that are working closely with the Haitian police. And um, like, say, for example, the death squads in El Salvador were working with the, the Salvadoran Treasury Police. And, um, you know, these, these paramilitaries under Moise hit a new level of terror, like in, for example, the neighborhood La Saline, where there was this, this horrific massacre back in 2018, the worst one in Haiti since the, the, the Duvalier days. Um, where dozens of people were systematically butchered by both the police and the paramilitary. This paramilitary formation involving an ex-cop named Jimmy Sherry Zier, who's known in Haiti as Barbecue, who is just uh, uh, part of, uh, he's an asset of the regime and certainly, you know, being backed by the powers that be. But this terror had not... Um, was not successful. The, the the movement continued to build. And then on top of that, Moise was increasingly brazen in his own power grabs and running into conflicts with people like Bulos. So it's quite likely that, um, you know, without necessarily, who knows who does what, but without necessarily giving the overt signal, if the U.S. Would suddenly retracted some support, that could be interpreted by green light by other sectors of the Haitian elite to... Uh, to take him out and replace him with another PHTK operative, which is exactly what's happened. And you write, expect the Biden administration to provide ongoing funding for the PHTK's brutal security forces. This should not be obscured by escalating media speculation regarding who did it, particularly in the aftermath of arrests of ex-Colombian soldiers and several Haitians with U.S. ties such as Christian Emmanuel Sanon. Why is who did it not the most important question to ask about the assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moise? How and what does who did it distract the media from reporting? That's a great question, because the problem with this and the the mainstream media, of course, loves this. Every now and then Haiti gets into the headlines, like after an earthquake or hurricane. And then Obama, I remember he had this Time magazine, like why Haiti Haiti matters as he lectures us while at the same time his administration is supporting 
uh, what amounts to fascism in Haiti. Um, you know, and the NPR liberal crowd is like, you know, sentimental over, over Obama's alleged progressive. But um, the who did done it question is largely um, irrelevant in the sense that what matters most is for any progressive minded person in the United States to be in solidarity with the popular, with the people's movement in Haiti to, um, to, to overthrow the PhDK regime, establish a genuine people's transition government capable of stabilizing Haitian society. I mean, the, we haven't talked in this interview yet, but the level, you know, I've been to Haiti 20 plus times over the last 15 years. The level of misery right now in Haiti is off the charts. It was already off the charts before, but the deterioration of things like garbage pickup, access to water, healthcare, um, teachers haven't been paid, public school teachers haven't been paid for like two years in some cases, right? The level of deterioration is off the charts. And so regardless of whether Moise is in charge of this regime or whether it's Claude Joseph or Ariel Henry or whoever, it really is irrelevant from the standpoint of the masses of the people because they're fighting for genuine decolonization. They're fighting to complete the 1804 revolution. They're fighting for... Um, genuine democracy and so if we get too caught up in every latest day like this person's arrested or this theory or whatever we're going to lose sight of the fact that it's really about the people taking on this u.s back regime you list the characteristics of the phtk and you write that they are engaging in pervasive corruption and the massive looting of public funds that you know that that's the narrative well the uh, corruption is the big narrative within the u.s mainstream media that it's seemingly like the united states can do nothing to help because there's so much corruption happening within haiti and the question that's never asked within the media is who is corrupting haiti <laughs> i like how you put that in the start of the program yeah, I mean that that's you know there there that's definitely um you know when we look at so many ways that Haiti is since the beginning has been subjected to racist coverage but one of the classic racist tropes is you know these black Haitians who had this chaotic revolution overthrowing the French have not been able to govern themselves. That's the classic racist white supremacist trope, right? And the corruption thing, the gang thing, it all fits into that. But when we look at, um, you know, when when the Haitian people have 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 established their own democratic government, like again during the Lavalas period, um, there is remarkable achievements that serve as a role model. You know, uh, uh, just like we see other examples of self determination, like where people. It serve as a role model. And, and so, you know, but, you know, when that's destroyed with U.S. backing and we get a series of puppet leaders who loot public funds like the Petro-Caribe scandal under Martelly and Moise, um, you know, this is corruption made in the USA. Just like, say, for example, Mobutu in the Congo after, they, after the CIA and, the, and, the, and the, the, the Belgium Secret Service killed Lumumba. You know, and then they, they're surprised that that the puppet they put in power, Mobutu, is corrupt, or they're surprised that Samosa is corrupt in Nicaragua. Of course, they're corrupt. That's their function. So, why does the U.S. and U.N. supported PHTK fear the Lavalas movement? What is it about the movement that frightens the United States and the United Nations? 
Well, you know, uh, I mentioned at the end of the article, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's speech in 1967 towards the end of his life in the, the, the Riverside Church in Harlem, where he came, he came out, uh, the speech beyond Vietnam, and he came out against the Vietnam War. And, and at the end of the speech, he says there's there's a, a world revolution occurring of the, what he called the barefoot and shirtless people of the world, the poor in the quote-unquote third world rising up for decolonization or what Frantz Fanon called the wretched of the earth. And he mentioned, Dr. King noted that the, essentially the United States is on the wrong side of that world revolution, that in the name of anti-communism or out of a morbid fear of communism, or um, the U.S. is backing the landlords versus the landless. It's backing the upper class versus the poor. And of course, the real root of that is it, it advances U.S. And, economic and imperial interests with or without communism in play. So when you get a movement like Lavalas, uh, which is this nonviolent mass movement of the people um, that is putting forward very basic demands. Uh, and it, it has a great program about how to restructure society called invest in the human being, um, you know, inspired by liberation theology, you know, um, this, this, these movements, whether it's Lavalas in Haiti or whether it's, say, for example, um, even a very basic thing like Mossadegh in Iran in the 1950s where they're going to nationalize the oil and invest in infrastructure for the Persian people. These things can't be allowed to, per, to exist because they contradict the U.S. Uh, plan uh, to uh, basically have the world's resources open for exploitation by, by U.S. and other corporations and vast supplies of cheap labor. You know, I'm a high school teacher out here in California. And, uh, we noticed um, that, uh, you know, we, and we, we, we take students on human rights trips to Haiti and whatnot. And um, we noticed that the school's uh, sporting stuff was made in Haiti. <laughs> so it's like, the, you know, all of these things that flow into the U.S. empire, whether it's shirts or phones, you know, with the cobalt coming out of the Congo, they all, um, that's part of the U.S. plan. And it just as it has been since the jump, since the U.S. stole resources and land from the indigenous peoples of this hemisphere, is to have the widest possible sphere for economic exploitation. And so if a movement like Lavalos is allowed to stand um, in a country like Haiti, which already has so much uh, significance as the, the, uh, a country by black people, founded by black people and overthrowing slavery, if, they could, if that country can set up its own example, it's like, there is kind of a domino theory. Other countries will be, will be uh, inspired. And, you know, same logic was why the U.S. destroyed Salvador Allende's popular unity movement in Chile uh, in 1973. You cite a report by the International Human Rights Clinic at, of the Harvard Law School, uh, an April 2021 report called Killing with Impunity State State-Sanctioned Massacres in Haiti. That report mentions the brutal killings, rapes, and torture of civilians in La Saline, Bel Air, City Soleil, as you were mentioning earlier. And it states that evidence suggests that senior government officials in Moise's administration have planned 
provided resources for and solicited attacks against civilians. Police resources were used in all three attacks, and police officers directly participated in the attacks alongside quote-unquote gang members. The human cost is intolerable. At least 240 civilians were killed in these three attacks. Hundreds of homes have been vandalized or burned. Human rights groups documented at least 25 rapes in the attacks. The full toll is likely far greater. Does the U.S. government support the PHTK because the U.S. public is simply not aware that the PHTK is involved in mass murder and rape? Is the issue here just a lack of an informed public in the United States, or is it something bigger than that? Well, I certainly think there, there's a huge information problem, which is why, you know, it's really appreciate um, you bringing this out to the to the Chicago listeners, right? You know, I think most people, even progressive or people on the left, don't don't know uh, largely much of this, right? Um, but you know, I think there's there's also the fact that in the U.S. we we have, and this is where um, media outlets like Black Agenda Report and others are really playing a key, a helpful, critical key role. Is we have to really develop a, a much broader and deeper anti-imperialist um, consciousness and praxis, you know, in, in this country where, you know, and, and so, you know, that's absent uh, from much of, of not all, but much of the organizing that happens in, in to connect the dots, you know, between the struggles at home and the struggles abroad. So I think we've, there, it's both an information, logistical access to information issue but it's also a political problem that we've got to uh, we've got to to figure out. As you mentioned earlier, there was growing opposition inside of the U.S. Congress to the Biden administration's ongoing support of the Moyes regime, as reflected by the April 26th letter from 68 members of the U.S. House of Representatives to the Biden administration, noting that the Moyes regime, quote, lacks the credibility and a legitimacy to oversee a constitutional referendum or to administer elections that are free and fair. That letter also states, despite this alarming situation, the State Department has been insistent both in public and in private meetings with members, that elections now scheduled for later this year are the only path forward. While elections will clearly be needed in the near future to restore democratic order, we remain deeply concerned that any electoral process held under the current administration will fail to be free, fair, or credible, and that continued U.S. insistence on elections at all costs will only make this outcome more likely. Seth, is that where we are headed, the Biden administration insisting on free and fair elections, which sounds great and very democratic within the mainstream media, but in reality, free and fair elections cannot happen as long as the PA PHTK is in power, which means another round of unfair elections that keep the U.S. supported PHTK in power under the guise of the Biden administration demanding democracy. Is that where we're headed? Exactly. You know, it's exactly. These are demonstration elections like the type the U.S. organized in El Salvador in the 1980s. You know, they, they're show elections. Um, the people on the ground in Haiti already know the score, you know, about the and they, ha, you know, the, the, they refer to them, as you mentioned earlier, electoral coup d'etats or selections right? just like so they know the score um you know the demand on the ground by fami lavalas which is again the party of the mass movement the lavalas movement and and other sectors of the opposition is for a transition government uh what what they call a what lavalas calls a public safety government to to uh, create a completely separate government drawing from uh, a haitian 
activists and professionals from all sectors, healthcare, education, you know, um, sanitation, you name it, to drawing uh, the dedicated professionals and activists from these different sectors to establish a, a transition government that can immediately um, deal with the fact that people um, are, are going through the worst crisis, uh, that they need immediate access to water and healthcare, they need to be an immediate end to the massacres. And, and, and then as the government, as the transition government does that, then it can organize truly fair and free elections. But for the U.S. to insist on fair and free elections in September, I mean, the fair and free is just Orwellian. It's, it, what they're saying is that, this, that the game will continue under the current dictatorship. There will be bogus elections, which um, you know, don't involve the majority of Haitians, and another U.S.-backed puppet will, 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 will maintain right, the, the reins of power. So... Uh, you know, I would really encourage your, your listeners, um, Haiti Action Committee, the website that we have, HaitiSolidarity.net. Again, that's HaitiSolidarity.net, provides a lot of information on that, including a little video um, that, uh, on, on the, the movement for um, a transition government. So I think that, that the more that we make ourselves in tune, in sync, in, in, uh, sync with um, the demands on the ground by the grassroots, the, the more we'll be able to, to make our political work effective and back those members of Congress that do have, I mean, there are members in Congress taking a correct stand right now and, and we can push others and push the Biden administration to back off of its support. Let's talk about that transition just for a second, because you write that today the people of Haiti are struggling courageously to establish their own transition government of Sally Piblik, public safety, mm -hmm. drawing on dedicated professionals and activists from all sectors of Haitian society, a government capable of stabilizing society and attending to people's most pressing needs while organizing truly fair and free elections. You call Sally Piblik, again, a uh, transition government. Is is it a political party or is it a one-time political project with one mission, free and fair elections without violent and deadly intimidation? Sure. So Sali Piblik is Creole for um, public safety. And it's, it's, a, it's a project by the opposition. So it's not a political party, but it's a project by uh, sectors of the opposition. And it's being advanced in particular by... Um, Fami Lavalas, that's the political party that's most based uh, amongst the poor majority and speaks to the needs of the poor majority. Uh, Fami Lavalas issued a, a statement in 2018 called Crisis and Resolution. We have that translated and linked on our website where they basically say, look, this regime under Jovenel Moise, uh, this PhDK regime is incapable of attending to people's most pressing needs. It's incapable of organizing fair and free elections. And so what we need is a Sali Piblik or public safety transition government to do, to, you know, again, to stabilize and, and organize truly fair and free elections. So, you know, that's a key part of the struggle right now vis-a-vis uh, -vis the U.S. Because the U.S., if that, if the Haitian people can establish their own transition government like Sali Piblik, then the U.S. is going to lose control over the elections. And what we've seen in Haitian history, when the, the people of Haiti can actually organize and take charge of their own elections, and they are fair and free, then you get somebody like President Aristide to come into power 
and really uh, restructure society in a progressive manner, right? And that's where the U.S. is going to continue unless we intensify our solidarity, expect the Biden administration and the U.S. government to continue to try to force through superficial, unfair and unfree elections under the current regime so it can maintain its current neoliberal uh, control over over the Haitian uh, people and the Haitian economy. And you write that U.S. policy towards Haiti as elsewhere through the third world has been remarkably consistent over the 19th, 20th, and now 21st centuries based on a white supremacist opposition to genuine decolonization and national liberation by black and colorized or colonized peoples. So how do you see white supremacy in the context of Haiti. We started this week by talking to Tanvi Misra about an article that she has at The Baffler, where she discusses white supremacist actions within the Modi government and within in India. And people might not think of white mm-hmm. supremacy when they think of India. And people might not think of white supremacy when they think of Haiti. So how do you see white supremacy in the context of Haiti? Is the PHTK supporting white supremacy? Yes. I mean, the... the um the you know PHTK uh, officials like Moise um, are largely black, uh, but you know white supremacy operates as you know what, what they often call systemic racism. It operates as a power structure on different levels, and on a global level, you know it, it, it perpetuates the structures of inequality that direct colonialism created in. So what we see in Haiti, of course, like in so many other countries, is neocolonialism, where you have people uh, like Jovenel Moise, who are uh, Haitian in this case, and, and who was black, but who is perpetuating these colonial structures of exploitation. You know, under, under the PHTK regime, like I mentioned earlier, there's been massive land grabs. There's been massive, there's been ongoing dispossession uh, massive displacement of the poor to continue to make way for for foreign companies and um, the global elite to come in and, and, and further plunder Haiti. So that perpetuates the structures, the global structures of power in which uh, a nation of black people based on overthrowing slavery is continuing is continuing to be uh, subjugated, uh, denied the right to self-determination and consequently um, the people on the brink of uh, uh, trying to survive will end up producing say shirts for high school students in the United States at 30 cents an hour or whatever right you know so it's it's the structures that this regime the colonial structures that this regime is perpetuating that make it an instrument of white supremacy. One last question for you, Seth. Seth Donnelly posted the Black Agenda Report article, The Assassination of Jovenel Moise. What next for Haiti? Seth is a member of the Haiti Action Committee, which you can find out more about at HaitiSolidarity.net. That's HaitiSolidarity.net. And you can follow them on Twitter at HaitiAction1. HaitiAction1. Seth is also the author of The Lie of Global Prosperity, How Neoliberals Distort Data to Mask Poverty and Exploitation, which was published back in 2019. One last question for you, Seth. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell. The question you okay. might hate, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Seth, why does the United States globally and historically never support the barefoot and shirtless? 
That's that's a powerful question to wrap up with. Um, well, it's you. You mentioned not to be over. You know, not to. Uh, I mean, it's, there's a, there's a lot of different layers to that. But you know, you mentioned earlier that money's the root of all evil, and uh, capital's about money. And do the math, <laughs> as you put it. Um, you know, it, it largely is. You know, the U.S. As a, as, is based on as as a it's not a, a nation. It's a it's a settler colonial project that was based on subjugating other nations. And it's an empire, right, with internal and external colonies, both direct, like Puerto Rico, and direct colonial occupation, like of indigenous um, lands inside of the empire, and then indirect, like in Haiti, with, with neo-colonies there. But the, the essence of it, despite all the, the, the rhetoric of democracy and, and whatnot from the jump in this country, or this empire, the, the essence of it is to elevate uh, capitalist exploitation over human rights, property rights over human rights, to, to, um, to prioritize the needs of upper class people within the empire and anywhere in the world over the needs of the poor majority. So, you know, when we see that clearly and the rhetoric is revealed for what it is, which is rhetoric, then there's a, a, an absolutely remarkably clear record, you know, of, uh, in fact, uh, there's an, an old classic by Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman called The Washington Connection to Third World Fascism. I think they published it with South and Press back in like the, the 80s. But what they found, um, you know, they were studying how flows of USA military aid and et cetera training, that those flows, go to regimes that are, are, are the most brutal in, in the world, right? And that um, at some other point, maybe it was in that book or another article, Chomsky found that U.S. military aid had increases to the extent that the, the countries receiving it are engaged in torture. So it's not like the U.S. just throws out this aid out of the world and some people grab it and and they are more brutal and other people grab it and they're not. It's that the U.S.'s aid is targeted towards um, uh, brutal regimes because those regimes maintain a quote-unquote stable investment climate and, and perpetuate this kind of set of, of, of priorities. So until we restructure our own society, until we create a society based on human need and uh, ecological sanity and based on cooperation and creativity and you know, um, then um, the problem will continue. So our, our, our revolution at home is inexorably linked to the revolutions we see in places like Haiti. Seth, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show today. I, we will be annoying you in email in the future to have you back on. Find out more about Haiti Action by going to HaitiSolidarity.net. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you. Keep up the great work. You know, I used to live in Chicago for many years. So some point when I'm back, maybe I'll be one of those guys that drops in the, the bar for office hours. So <laughs> you should, you should definitely do work. it. You're more than welcome. And it'd be great to meet you, man. All right. Take care you guys. Thank you. If you like what you just heard from Seth Donnelly on what's actually happening in Haiti, please show your support for completely listener supported. This is hell by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support to see all the ways you can contribute to this is hell, including all of our merchandise, uh, 
the trucker's cap, the winter hat, the coffee mug, the tote bag, the t-shirt, the flash drive history of This Is Hell in the 21st Century. You can find all of that stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Or you can become a weekly Patreon uh, patron, listener to our Patreon podcast, which you can subscribe to by going to patreon.com slash this is hell keeping it real real deep in debt since 1996 this is hell and if you do want to climb us help us climb out of that debt please subscribe to our friday morning 10 a.m chicago time patreon podcast podcast at the same place shortly after on patreon tomorrow this week this is hell celebrated being on air now for 25 years so i will be giving you a brief history of this is hell including being threatened by a chicago alderman how a local group would not do the show unless we gave them an hour of the show every week permanently the activists who told us to never discuss a certain topic on air or we would likely be kicked off the air and how we then talked about that subject ad nauseum then there's the time we let someone into the station who stole a whole bunch of computers the other time someone came in and turned off the power to the entire station right before we went on air we'll share the only profanity of the seven dirty words you are not supposed to say on the radio that has actually led to a complaint and you'll never guess which word it was but We also said a word on the air that you're not supposed to say on the air. A certain word that you might be thinking we got in trouble about, but we didn't. And I'll explain why I said that on the air. And and I'll tell you what happened, uh, you know, in some other situations. Like when we tried to interview the attorney for Dr. Kevorkian. And we didn't interview the attorney for Dr. Kevorkian. But we did interview somebody who worked for the attorney who was representing Dr. Kevorkian. But all that's going to be on the monologue tomorrow. We're also uh, going back 11 years to find out how we were covering Haiti back then by playing our January 2010 interview with Peter Halward, who is author of Damning the Flood, Haiti, Aristide, and the Politics of Containment. Haiti had just been struck by an earthquake, and Peter had just posted the Guardian opinion piece, Our Role in Haiti's Plight, in that article. Peter concluded, along with sending emergency relief, we should ask what we can do to facilitate the self-empowerment of Haiti's people and public institutions. If we are serious about helping, we need to stop trying to control Haiti's government, to pacify its citizens, and to exploit its economy. And then we need to start paying for at least some of the damage we've already done. Later that year, the U.S. would support what Seth Donnelly and other critics of U.S. policy in Haiti call an electoral coup d'etat. So no, Peter's advice was not heeded, of course. So tomorrow on the Patreon podcast of This Is Hell at patreon.com slash thisishell, beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time and posted at the same place shortly after. It's a brief history of the first 25 years of This Is Hell and an 11-year-old plea for the U.S. to change its colonial white supremacist policy toward Haiti. But again, you can only hear that by subscribing to Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. In a few minutes, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff gives an avowed centrist a lesson in radical socialist leisureism. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host podcast host, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show. Today's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, please remind our listeners, what is this week's question from hell and tell us how they are responding. This week's question from hell is, where did it all go wrong? Where did it all go wrong? Neil C. says, person, or generally, the intersection of Main Street and Wall Street. <laughs> Personally, my elementary school playground, where the class bully extorted my lunch money, is it too late to sign up for Jess's boxing classes? <laughs> I think you have to be under 10 years old. The email, DM, etc., 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 Daniel Z says, Skokie. Where did it all go wrong? Max H says, email. Nurse Kobe says, in the garden. 
Ioni B says, where did it ever go right? Adam B says, Valix's mom at the second floor ice machine. Oh, man, dude. Hypocrite Reader tried to troll us with the name of that Welsh town that's really hard to pronounce because it's really, really long. Dude, you do that so perfectly. Yeah, I had to talk into a different mic. Uh, Stephen C <laughs> says, when Hal said to Dave, I don't think there's any doubt about it. It can only be attributed to human error. Jeffrey D says, when Fonzie waterski jumped over the shark. And Ian R says colonialism. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell still at our Facebook page or you can tweet it to us or you can email it to us but we got to have your answer now because we will be announcing the winner of this week's question from hell and a piece of this is hell merchandise as soon as Jeff Dorchin has finished the moment of truth live from hangover country this is hell and I know you have Hefe right here Stooges in space and other embarrassments. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Yesterday, the big news on Twitter's little news ticker was photo of anti-Greta bumper sticker on flooded car is manipulated. The reference is to a photo of a partially submerged car awash in the recent insane climate disaster deluge in Germany and the bordering low countries. Someone photoshopped a bumper sticker onto the car that says, F you, Greta. I guess it appealed to posters and tweeters who thought the photo was an ironically righteous burn against those who deny climate change and rage against Greta Thunberg. Ha! I guess Greta has the last laugh, hypothetical straw man, because here you are suffering from the very climate change Greta is decrying. Who's effed now, smartass? So the top news is that, even though it's true that climate change is causing extreme weather disasters and some people who deny it are nonetheless negatively affected by it, the libs are owned because someone faked something that is without doubt real somewhere in any case. Something on the internet is fake? Stop the presses, that's the top news of the day in our mind and algorithm. A photoshopped hoax mocking an opinion that is obviously laughable whether the photo is fake or not. That's news. I guess they really needed something exponentially dumber than what was dominating the news cycle already. The billionaire Three Stooges in Space... Muskie hasn't gone up yet at the time of this writing, and he does tend to go back on his word quite often, so maybe he'll stay on the ground. Some of us, I'm not saying who, hope he wants so much to show up his rivals, Bezos and Branson, that he'll decide to best them by making a daring landing on the sun. Let us consider it resolved. These billionaire space flights are wasteful, braggadocious parodies of what we have already collectively accomplished through our governments over a half a century ago. Three overprivileged white men using their hoarded, abuse-gotten wealth to achieve what a dog named Laika did in 1957 ought to be an occasion for violent public fury, not adulation. This is the nadir of civilization. These aren't heroes, they're clown pigs. And yes, even if it was Oprah or Ben Carson or Herman Cain back from the grave, they'd still be clown pigs. 
But it's no coincidence it's three white-ass white men who are the paragons of pig-ass clownery. It's a three-headed display of race, gender, and economic dominance. Effigies and other things should be dismembered in the public square. The fact that this hasn't ignited a public stampede of the barricades is a credit not just to the success of pro-capitalist brainwashing that makes heroes out of gluttonous pig-ass clown-thief charlatan huckster sphincter turtles. It's also a credit to rank-and-file humanity for prizing peace over justifiable homicide. Yes, you who could solve so many desperate social crises with your wealth, but instead choose to hoard it and squander it on pathetic gestures of self-aggrandizement. You need to thank your lucky stars that every person in your sphere doesn't come to their senses and rip you to bloody shreds. But that's just my opinion. And as you all know, my opinions are questionable. I've said it before, though, and I'll say it again. It's the people with the big ideas and the vast ambitions we have to be aware of. They're the ones who cause misery. No one ever heard of a small farmer causing mass misery. No one ever heard of a librarian dooming millions to famine because of her brilliant idea of how to make a great leap forward. We've heard of Nero fiddling, but we've never heard of a fiddler burning down the hub of Western civilization. Have you ever listened to the NPR show On the Media? Good show about how and why the media reports on things the way it does. Until recently, it was hosted by two people, Bob Garfield and Brooke Gladstone. Bob had great affection for Brooke and ended the list of personnel at the close of each show with an endeared, and the show was edited by Brooke. But a while ago, after hosting the show for many, many years, Bob was accused of bullying his underlings and fired. According to Brooke, who gave a brief on-air statement, an agreement of sorts had been reached, and it's really not the listener's business what really happened because, you know, no one can tease apart what actually occurred from the he-said-they-said said tangle of threads. A week and a half ago, or so, I saw a tweet by Bob that said something about moving into a new arena of programming for him, and mistaking it for a recent tweet, I replied, and I paraphrase, Sorry to nab the low-hanging fruit, but... Have you considered bullying your way in? I knew it was wrong, and I indicated I knew it was wrong, and he direct messaged me thus. Look, I don't want to be thin-skinned, but first of all, that tweet you noticed was from 2020. Secondly, you have essentially no idea, apart from a disingenuous WNYC press release, what happened with me. I mean, none. It will all come out, but... Meantime, what is gained by careless cheap shots? Come on, dude. I responded with yet another apology, told him he was right. I would delete my tweeted response, which I did, but I added the following. What is gained by careless cheap shots? Since you ask, that's my thing. I write things nobody reads, give commentary on a podcast only a self-selecting few listen to, I act in art films no one pays me for, and give money to random busking DJs on Zoom. I do dumb things for no gain. I'm an artist. It's not that I don't believe in adding value, it's just that I don't do that. But I have respected your work, and that's why I apologize sincerely. 
What is gained is the most irrelevant question one can ask in a world we're collectively destroying with no hope in sight other than small temporary kindnesses we can extend one another and for missing my opportunity to do that for you, I apologize. I hope that explains something. Bob, life is not a contract. We've abrogated whatever the social contract might have been in the most important sense, and we've certainly done so in our treaty with nature if we ever had one. I don't believe in getting the most out of life. Too much pressure. Anyway, I regret that you were something of a casualty in my blindfolded driving escapade. I know this is alien and stupid to someone like you who actually contributes to society, and I wish I didn't have to expose you to this philosophy if you've never encountered it before, or even if you have, but I'm just a blindfolded driver on the unpaved territory, and I've tried driving in the lanes and with the blindfold off, and I seriously don't get the attraction. And that was the end of that. I wonder, by offering my half-baked explanation of the tenets of the Socialist Leisure Party, if I might have changed the world in my tiny way, because... Jesus, I hope not. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. I love that on the media won't comment on the media that is on the media. <laughs> I know. That is spectacular. That's exactly, that, that's so funny. I was, that's a little ironic. So, Jeff, you got a thing tomorrow or Saturday at 2 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, also known as Little India and also stupidly known as on Devon. So what the hell are you doing Saturday at 2 o'clock? <laughs> so, yeah, I'm reading three of, uh, of I feel, uh, I don't know if they're the best. They're just, I think they'll be entertaining live. They're past once, once from the past. And uh, they each have a little, uh, well, they each have a little bit to do with celebrity or Hollywood or something. And I will be accompanied by the great guitarist, musician, uh uh, John Shemansky and songwriter, uh, who is recently, or in the last couple of years, he's become part of like every iteration uh, or combination or permutation of John Langford's bands, John Langford from the Mekons. Mm -hmm. And uh, listener of the show. Listener to the show. And I, well, wow, he's going to learn this on air. <laughs> John, I think John Shemansky is now your boss. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. Oh, oh Chuck, I'm wondering Yes. Uh, if uh, we can somehow get people to subscribe to Patreons at the show and receive merch at the show. Hmm. Well, we have some leftover merchandise here. Uh, we can sell some stuff here. We'll sell that at a discount because we'll be selling it directly from here. And... Uh, yeah, I guess I should bring over our little credit card thing. Yeah, we can do that. Also, if you would do a, a titty dance. No, yes. That's no? Yeah, no, I said yes. That's definitely on the oh, card. Oh, yes. Yeah, okay, yeah, good. It's an undercard. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. This week's question from hell is, where did it all go wrong? Where did it all go wrong? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets their choice of This Is Hell merchandise. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Alex, how are the rest of our listeners responding to this week's question from hell? Uh, where did it all go wrong? Where did it all go wrong? Bilbo Baggies says, <laughs> yeah, thought you'd like that one, Chuck. Never should have let the dinosaurs go extinct. They're the only ones who could have kept us humble. Fred B. posts an image of the Big Bang. 
Okay. Elaine S. says, when some of those stupid single cells with a nucleus started profiting from the cooperative multiple cell organisms, they also evolved into CEOs and shareholders. <laughs> Follow my Twitch channel, Sock Time, says, late Reganic <laughs> area. Sorry, let me try that again. Late Reganic era. Okay. Helpful moron, <laughs> says, when the trilobites died, old pal eat fart 69 <laughs> says, when John Hinckley Jr. missed... I didn't know he was a junior. <laughs> I didn't know he was either. Uh, and why don't we know his all three of his names? He's like one of the only assassins we know that doesn't have all three names. Uh, John Bunyan, descended from immigrants, said <laughs> when Lucy got laid 3.2 million years ago. <laughs> Two Throne says when Giuseppe Joe Zangara missed his shot. And finally, Tokemata posted a meme of probably pre-humanoid gorilla-looking people uh, labeled me a peaceful creature collecting sticks from my family's nest and his family saying my harem of traditional loving wives caring for each other and our younglings uh, then in the background there's a boulder that says my impenetrable mist of prehistory there's also some other monkeys that is labeled fellow beasts of eden uh, there's some sort of like pig looking thing that says a domesticated harbinger of slavery industrial civilization genocide extinction and death and then finally Good old insidious homo sapiens who have learned the dark arts of tool making and animal husbandry lurking in the shadows preparing to murder and eat my family. You might, you might want to just look at it. <laughs> go on Twitter and you can find it. That was a really great description, though. I could picture it in my head. Any more? Uh, that's it. You want me to read that one again? No, okay. no, please. That's it. Yeah, that, that's going to be our favorite for the week, so you got to repeat the entire thing. So the answers I liked most were Daniel Z saying Skokie, Max H saying email, Neil C saying generally the in intersection of Main Street and Wall Street, personally my elementary school playground where the class bully extorted my lunch money. Uh, the, by the way, at my school, that was my best friend. Uh, it is, and it says, is it too late to sign up for Jess's boxing class? Andrew S saying ancient Mesopotamia. When some idiot decided to settle down and invent agriculture, Joel G. saying Homo erectus, Bradley R. saying nothing is wrong, the universe is unfolding the only way it can, now get back to work. Alex, do you have any opinion on which is the uh, best? Was it Fabio that said mom and dad? <laughs> yes. That was good, but uh, I think uh, I'll stick with Skokie. I'm going to go with Skokie, too, and I don't know why, but I found that freaking hilarious. Sorry, Skokie. <laughs> Sorry, Skokie. So, Daniel Z, you are the winner of this week's question mail. All you have to do is just tell us what piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want, and we'll get it in the mail to ASAP. Just send us a message via Facebook with your mailing address and which piece of merchandise you want. My answer to this week's question from Hell, much like Fabio's, where did it all go wrong? It all went wrong on New Year's Eve, nine months before my birth, when my parents had very likely sloppy sex and the my father laughingly would tell me later on in life a mistake was conceived because my dad was freaking hilarious thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell alex do we have anyone scheduled yet for next week's set of shows oh uh, yeah 75 percent of the way done so on monday christina conklin artist christina conklin will be on to talk about her book the atlas of disappearing places our coasts and oceans in the climate crisis uh, then Wednesday, Jorge Majfud, we got to figure that one out before Wednesday, we'll be on to talk about his piece for Common Dreams, Cuba and the U.S., the difference between dictatorship and tyranny. And then Thursday, Avi Gorelick will be on to talk about his hypocrite reader piece, The Violence is the Point. And Jeffy will be doing another moment of truth, of course. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com. 
and we start the world broadcast premiere of This Is Hell on WNUR on Saturday mornings by me uh, revealing this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is using a top of a bullet point pen, whatever that is, to massage that spot between the tip of your nose and lips next to each of your nostrils, in between your eyebrows, and to rub your cheekbones as well. Thanks to this week's guests, including... Tanvi Misra, who posted the Baffler article, Broader Crises, Indian Border Crossers Illuminate the Interconnectedness of Mass Migration. Also thanks to Keir Milburn, who wrote the Navarra Media Opinion piece, Freedom Day Won't Set Us Free, Populist Masterstroke, More Like Unmitigated Disaster. Thanks to yesterday's guest, Panos Theodoropoulos, who wrote the Roar Magazine article, Rituals of Submission, Amazon's Creation of the Neoliberal Worker, and thanks to Seth Donnelly, who posted the Black Agenda Report article, The Assassination of Jovenel Moise, What Next for Haiti. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing this week's shows. Thanks to Richard Norwood and Jess Lipka for running the board this week. Thanks to Jeff Dorch for another moment of truth and Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in rotten history talk to you tomorrow on patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell when I'll be sharing a brief history of the first 25 years of this is hell and we'll be playing our January 2010 interview with Peter Hallward author of damning the flood Haiti Aristide and the politics of containment Peter was on to talk about the way the West should respond to an earthquake that had devastated Haiti but instead of doing what Haiti, uh, what Peter suggested empowering the people of Haiti the West with U.S. and U.N. support engaged in another electoral coup d'etat. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we have introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Matt Damon. No. Uh, <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>